certain types and certain amount of inflammation is required for the proper function of our tendons and ligaments. When we eliminate it using ice, using massive anti-inflammatories, using other things that are designed to decrease all inflammation, what we see is our, our ligaments and tendons become horrible. That was Dr. Keith Barr, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're in the world of sports performance, you've probably heard of jump testing mats. These mats use hang time to measure total jump height or contact time to measure quickness abilities off of the ground. The best jump mat that I've come across also happens to be a sponsor of this show, which is the Plyomat. The Plyomat is not only accurate, easy to use, and affordable, but it also allows you to string multiple mats together to add an extra dynamic to plyometric testing and training. To check out the Plyomat, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T dot net. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is an online software for coaches and trainers, and I've continued to hear great things about the Team Builder platform. If you're looking for either an in-house training portal for your training groups or an online training hub, be sure to check out the Team Builder training software. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, and thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to welcome back to the show Dr. Keith Barr. He's a professor at UC Davis and a renowned tendon training researcher and expert. He's worked with elite athletes as well as numerous athletic clubs throughout the world. Keith's first guest appearance on this podcast on the role of tendon health and isometrics as well as nutrition was one of our most popular episodes ever, and tendon health and performance is a huge topic in the world of athletics. On the show today, Keith will be building on what he was talking about last episode by exploring tendon tissue adaptation. He'll be talking about how uh, longer duration isometrics and more shorter burst activities can work together to have an additive effect on our tendon health and performance. He'll talk about the way that the body can shield damaged parts of tendon tissue and how we can engage the fullness of our tendons in training by using longer duration isometric work. This and much more on the podcast. It was awesome having Dr. Barr back on the show. And I know you guys will love this episode. Let's get on to episode 392 of the podcast. Dr. Barr, it's awesome to have you back on the show. And I think you're on sabbatical right now. So I, th I thought you were back in California, but you're in Holland. So what, what are you up to right now? Or what brings you, um, what, what's been your interest recently um, away from your typical university work? Yeah, so thanks for having me back on. So, so basically, what I'm doing here in Holland is I'm working with a guy named Luke Van Loon, who's who's one of the top people in the world at protein metabolism and how what we eat becomes who we are. And so he looks a lot at at muscle and how you know when we digest and absorb protein, how do where does that go and can we affect brain? Can we affect muscle? Can we affect all of these other tissues to maintain or to grow our muscles to to maintain our strength? And so he's been doing a bunch of studies looking at human tendons as, and whether dietary collagen has any effect on, on human tendon connective tissue protein synthesis. And so, so I'm over here doing a bunch of work um, with him looking at uh, human hamstring tendons in people who are having ACL reconstruction. We're getting their hamstring, part of their hamstring tendon because they're using most of it to, to reconstruct the, the ACL. The part that's left over, we're going to we're going to use to determine whether having taken dietary collagen or placebo control, do we 
we see greater incorporation of deuterated water, which is just a measure of protein turnover. So can we increase protein turnover, the amount of collagen you're making in your tendon based on what our diet is? Because that's one of the big you know, questions that's been going around in the field. So, you know, you go to the best place to do it, and that's that's here in, in Maastricht and Hall. Yeah, I know before we push record, I was asking you, I was basically just like peppering you with questions on all sorts of like supplements that are out there. And, you know, I know last time we talked about like collagen and vitamin C and things like that. And I think you had said it's like, well, the exact answer is a little bit more nuanced than take this one product. But but in terms of some of that, where some of that nuance has grown um, and, and some of the things that at least the research and everything is leading towards, um, what's, what, uh, if anything, has been really like built concretely on that uh, basic collagen and vitamin C recommendation from last time? Yeah, so, so what's, what we can say with, with certainty is that if we look in a long-term situation, so there have been some meta-analysis now with people who take collagen and looking predominantly at, say, knee osteoarthritis. And what we can say pretty definitively is that the, the collagen supplementation seems to improve symptoms of knee osteoarthritis and improve, and there's you know a couple of nice studies that show it, they improve the cartilage within the knee. So, so we've got a little bit when we look in a long-term, so these are a year-long study. When we look shorter term, now that's where we get into a much more gray area. So how this is looking is, that there are two ways you can measure collagen synthesis. One is by looking at one piece of the collagen that we make, and that's this thing that we call the P1NP or the, the N-terminal peptide. And we can look to see how much of that we're making because when we make a piece of collagen, a new piece of collagen or collagen protein, we make it as this big long protein. We then cut off the two ends because we make it in such a way that it doesn't assemble within our cells because that would ruin our cells. So the, the two ends only get cut off when we, ex, when we export it and begin to make it into these collagen fibers and fibrils that are going to make our tendons, ligaments, connective tissues. So if we're looking at P1NP, what that's telling us is how much collagen we've made in the last few minutes or last few hours. The other way that we can look at collagen is and how much collagen we've made recently is to use stable isotopes. And stable isotopes are just amino acids that weigh more than a normal amino acid. And we can give those people either in their diet or we can infuse that into people. And we can watch, we can then take a chunk of tendon, muscle, ligament, whatever it is, and measure how much of that heavy amino acid has been made into that tissue. Now, you can imagine that if you're making new collagen, producing P1NP, cutting that off, that's going to happen quite, quite quickly. To, to take that new collagen and put it into a tissue and to make a significant amount of that tissue come from the collagen that you've just infused. That takes longer. Now, when we look at these two methods, they're not consistent in what they show, even in the same study. So there's one study by this wonderful researcher, Meta Hansen, and she took women who were postmenopausal, and then half of them had estrogen replacement therapy. When she looked at P1MP levels, the estrogen replacement therapy showed that their P1MP levels were lower. But when she looked at incorporation of stable isotopes, that was actually higher. So we've got this really complicated situation when we try to measure it. It's really, really difficult. So a lot of the studies that look at incorporation using stable isotopes, they don't see an effect of collagen supplementation. 
In most of the studies that use P1NP, what we see is we see that there's an increase in the production of new collagen when we take a collagen supplement. So, and then when we look long-term, I told you that we had these meta-analyses that say there's benefits. So what it probably means is that just like muscle protein, when we, we all know that we need to eat lots of leucine-rich protein to build our muscles, but we also should know that if we just sit on our couch and we take in beautiful leucine-rich protein, our muscles aren't going to get any bigger. So there's this combination of what's happening from our training, from our, from our loading component, and the component that comes from our nutrition. The, the component that comes from our nutrition, whether we're talking about leucine-rich protein for muscle or collagen for, for connective tissue, that's relatively small in relation to the, to the big effective exercise or training. Mm. Yeah, as you were talking about that even and like the complexities of it, I was the first thing that came to my head was like the interplay of exercise and supplementation. Obviously, there has the body is a system of systems. So there's this like interlinking and, and how that impacts how even the research might, you know, ultimately like the ultimate product of the research or whatnot. Absolutely. And the other thing that's really important is if I want to take a muscle biopsy from you, I just can take a big needle and stick it into your leg and I can get a muscle biopsy. There's only one or two groups in the world who take tendon biopsies. And that's because basically the tendon um, is more difficult to regenerate than the muscle piece that you're taking out. And so, you know, we see that with people who get, you know, ACL reconstruction using the middle third of the patellar tendon. A lot of people have issues with site, you know, donor site morbidity, where your knee hurts, the anterior knee hurts for ages and ages and never, never really functions the same again. And so it's not as easy to get these connective tissue biopsies. And that's why that's one of the reasons I'm in Holland, because we're getting them from these ACL reconstructions. And so that getting that whole piece of tendon, now that's a unique situation. And being able to measure protein turnover in that is going to be is going to give us a lot better sense as to what these what these nutritional supplementations are, are really doing on the short term yeah i um i wanted to get into so with the exercise and supplementation combination i the next question i had for you was based off of um like the evolution or anecdotes of the isometrics and how that impacted tendons but i do want to ask this because otherwise i probably won't at the end but uh, and I know probably not everyone is familiar with this, but like some of the like injectable peptides or you mentioned like BPC-157, people talking about these like miracle joint peptides or things like that. Um, what is your opinion on some of these? Uh, I, I don't even know what to call them, just injectable peptides. <laughs> it's all the only term I know. So. So, so what we call them is magical elixirs because there's, there are all kinds of these things. There's things where people in incubate your blood with gold particles and then the gold is supposed to activate the serum and then you inject the serum back in. There's BPC-157, all of these different things. And, and so we're unique. My laboratory is unique in that what we do, one of the main things that we do is we engineer human ligaments. And so we've got a human ligament in a dish. We control the whole environment. And what we did to test some of these things is we did the gold particle act activation. We did the BPC BPC 157, where we put in basically did a dose response. When we went from low concentration to really really high concentrations of these peptides, we did this with we added the serum. They have no effect at all on 
the stiffness, the strength, collagen content, anything on these developing ligaments. They, these ligaments are perfectly able to see when we do something beneficial. So if we put in drugs, if we put in nutrients that improve, that are good for the tendon and are good for these ligaments, basically what happens is we see that they become bigger, stronger, and they, they have more collagen or they have better cross-linking within the collagen. These peptides, these magical elixirs, they don't really do anything at all. So a lot of times what will happen is somebody's going to stick in their needle and they're going to start injecting themselves. They don't know what they're doing. They're going to they're going to mess around in there a little bit. That's actually one of the treatments for tendinopathy. It's called pithing, where they go in and they just needle that area. And all you're doing is you're making the scar or not the scar, but the healthy tendon weaker. And by making the healthy tendon weaker, now you get load through the tendon. That's basically the principle behind what we use, which is slow isometric or long isometric contractions. But anything that's going to have a beneficial effect in the long run, what it has to do is it has to get through what we call stress shielding. And stress shielding comes from, look, if I have something that's weak together and in parallel with something that's really strong, if I pull on them, the stronger thing is going to take all the load because they're in parallel. So if I'm sitting there doing a tug of war and the rock is beside me, we're both pulling on a rope, nobody's feeling me. And so I can be pulling as hard as I want. All of the load is going through the big fellow. And, and so that's basically what's happening in a tendon injury situation is that the injured part, not getting loaded too much. The, the really good, strong part, the, the healthy part is still getting good load. So if I come in there and I jab it with a needle a couple of times, well, that's going to mess up that healthy part. And then now I can't stress shield the little damaged part as well. And so now if I then load, now it's going to be beneficial because it's no longer stress shielded to the same degree. It's still not going to be as good as we can get. And you, you don't have to do it. And it doesn't cost anything to do an isometric. Whereas all of these different interventions that people do, they're just these magical elixirs, things that are maybe beneficial if they actually do the exact opposite of what people think they're doing. And that is that they're making the actual healthy part weaker. And that's really what we need to do in order to fix the damaged part of the tendon. Yeah, it's interesting that so often the best things in life are free. <laughs> and I, um, you know, I was, the, the gold thing kind of got me like, you know, you think about people with gold teeth, it's like, I have gold tendons, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it again, it's one of those things where somebody sees that some professional athlete did it and, it, and they're back and they're, they're doing great. Oh, I'm going to do this. You know, a lot of it's the same as PRP and other things like, and a, a lot of the other orthobiologics. There's not really good evidence in the lower body when you go to load you're going to walk out of the, your doctor's office. If you do PRP injections into the tendon, if you do, none of those have evidence that they're better than a placebo control mm -hmm. injection of, yeah. of water or of saline. And so, so what that's telling us, again, it's doing the same thing. You're putting a needle in, you're pushing around. Basically, all you're doing is you're damaging the healthy part. If there's a benefit, it's because you've messed up the the healthy tendon and now we can't stress shield yeah i think about a, a lot of stuff even 
outside of like the collagen or the peptides or whatever, like I feel like anything, any supplement or thing that you either inject or it's a spray, it's like you can't, it's not a pill. It's like a spray or it's something you inject is going to carry like a pretty stout placebo effect depending on the person too, you know, and if a pro athlete might've used something and it's like, oh, you can only get it in a spray. I think there's a lot of mental, you know, powerful placebo potency behind it. I mean, you know, the placebo effect is certainly powerful. So I'm sure some people are like, oh, I use this and it was The belief effect is huge. And so, you know, we know that because you can take a bunch of images of people. And if we image every professional basketball player's knee, we're going to find about 75% of them have signs of anterior knee problems where they have patellar tendinopathy or we've got something like that. But only about 40% of them actually are symptomatic. And sometimes the people who are symptomatic have the least obvious things on when we look at their at their imaging. And so a lot of that is because people are more sensitive. They have different they have different triggers. They have different things going on, which are going to lead to what we measure, which is pain. But pain is something that I can make people feel more pain by making them tired, by making them all of these different things that I can do to them. It's not really an objective measure. So, and when we don't have objective measures, it, it makes it really difficult to then move science forward because, oh, this is working, but there's beautiful effect. There's beautiful studies on the belief effect on lots of different things. And it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, even, um, I remember it was, I think last year I had gotten a book by, it was a physician who used uh, visualization alongside his physician practice. So he had both sides of the equation and there was one for like joints or something. And I did like the the Achilles visualization and I was like, man, my Achilles feels amazing. (laughs) You know, it's like, there is so much. And I wonder if you go in the tissue, you know, like with some of that stuff, like if you actually went and did the MRI, right? Like you're saying, like, was it, what was the, change there's probably more the perception of whatever's going on and i think about the um but i think that's where like doing both is awesome like if you have something that's more of the um that that can demonstrate long-term changes and then you have the mental to go hand in hand with it then you like now you're cooking you got both ends of the and this is where ebony has done a lot of really good work in australia where she she works with what, what we call central inhibition so central inhibition is when you have when you have pain, so if you've got an ACL reconstruction, you're braced, you get come back and you and your physical therapist after your surgery says, okay, contract your quadriceps. And you can't physically contract your quadriceps because your brain is no, is no longer allowing your body to contract those muscles. You then work through that using feedback and different things. But what Ebony is showing is that when you have a tendon problem, you don't put as much load through the tissue. And so that's natural because we know that there's an issue. So there's high sensitivity. So there's feedback that comes up and we get central inhibition. And so a lot of these things are things that we use when we're working with athletes who are coming back from injuries because the central inhibition is almost as, it's very much like, I'm not going to put load through there. And I know that if I don't put enough load through there, I'm not going to fix it. So now what we have to do is we have to take them outside of their brains. And these are incredible athletes who are very attuned to what their body is doing. So the result is that they, if there's anything that they feel, they'll know it immediately. So what we have to do is we have to get their focus out of their body. 
And what we can do is you can use metronomes, you can use little dots that are going, you can have them imitate other people doing the same exercise. Now what they're doing is they're externalizing their focus. And what happens is the central inhibition of the contraction of the force that you can put through that tendon goes down. And that's Ebony Rio's research. And and it's really, really useful. And that's where we would use that kind of kind of combination of load, but also this neurocognitive component to it. Yeah. I feel like it's almost in some ways it's almost uh, the work on tendons and at least pain and function is almost inseparable from like pain science and and some of those pieces that do go into it. I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert in, in pain science by any means, but I do find it really intriguing. Like like you said, the um the NBA players who are asymptomatic or people with like back issues who are asymptomatic or who aren't, you know, it's it's a really fascinating piece in that total equation. Absolutely. But it's much more difficult. And for those of us who are yeah. who like quantitative science, it, it it makes it really difficult to then evaluate yeah. an intervention. And so that's where I, I want to see, you know, qualitative quantitative things. Yeah. I want to see force that goes through there. I want to see, I want to see kind of what the tissue looks like so that we can actually go through and say, yes, we fixed mm. the tissue or no, we have. Because a lot of times what we'll do is we'll go through a short-term program, we'll get some benefit, and then people will start to get back to their activity. But then what happens is it you stop doing those exercises because, oh, I'm okay, I'm better now. And then what happens is if you haven't actually fixed the tissue, the symptoms just come back, especially when we get into a period of time like we just came through where people are going to all kinds of holiday things. And so so now they're not taking as much time to do their training. Now what's happening is that tissue is actually going to regress. And if we didn't fix the injury, now we've got that same injury where we've regressed back and we haven't fixed it so if you do what what people have suggested which was is treat the donut not the hole so if there's a hole in your tendon you try and make the strong part stronger well after a few weeks of not training as much the strong parts have gotten weaker and now you've you've gone back if you still have that hole there now you've gone back to having full symptoms again and so really what you have to do is you have to continuously treat until you actually feel, fix the tissue. And the only way to do that is to make sure that we're only we're not only guided by pain because pain can be modified quite easily. Isometric contractions decrease pain. So a lot of people use them as activations before they train. That's great, but don't don't think that that's fixed your tendon. It hasn't yet fixed yeah. your tendon. It's just made it so that you have less pain associated with that activity. Yeah. I, I know before we pushed record, I was talking about just some of the stuff I've done in the past where I, I felt good to the, like, I do something before the workout, felt good in the workout. After like five or six of those workouts consecutively, I actually ended up almost in a little bit of a worse place or the pain was even in a different spot. And I was like, this is almost different, but worse. But you know, like it's, it's like just being conscious of, um, yeah, not just slapping a bandaid on things, I guess, you know, maybe for lack of a better yeah, term. Absolutely. And what most what most athletes will know is that a lot of times what you're doing is you're chasing something. You've got, especially in the hips, where you've got everything is so interconnected, where if you've got some problem, a tendonitis in, say, in a periformis, and now that's causing you to do some modification. If you fix the periformis, now something comes up in the in the iliacus or so you just are chasing this thing and it chasing it around. And if you're if you're not really fixing anything, you're just going to be continuously chasing that thing 
and it's going to take away from your training and it's going to take away from your enjoyment of, of the activity. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the things, one of the things I did, I, I want to get into some isometric and training. I know there's a really good rock climbing anecdote that you had. Um, there's just something I had thought about is I had modified a pair of shoes of mine where I, I really, uh, I cut them specifically to actually, um, bias more supination and less pronation, which funny enough, I would run in those shoes and my Achilles would actually feel pretty good. But then I did it enough, like this kind of tags along with what you're saying. After about maybe two months, I noticed my, the belly of my Achilles pain was almost completely gone, but now it's all in the insertion and like double, like, <laughs> so it's almost like the, the supination strike was causing a quicker shock value or something right at that base yeah. or so. Yeah, and kind of so thing. the way that we, the way that we look at shoes is if you have a knee problem, a lot of times what we're going to do is we're going to get you something that has a little bit less of a heel, less of a rise to it, so less of a drop. So that what we're going to do is we're going to make you move to your forefoot. If you have an Achilles, now what we're going to do is we're going to give you a bigger heel so that you'll you'll stride longer and you'll hit more on your heel. So all we're doing is we're manipulating those those things like the rise in the shoe, like all of these things as where we're going to have the biggest strain. So if you've got a history of Achilles problems, what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and make it so that you have less strain on the Achilles and more strain on the on the patellar tendon. Because again, it's all one system. We have to absorb this impact force that we're getting. So are we going to do it by landing a little bit more on our toe and taking more in the Achilles? Or are we going to do it by landing more on the heel, taking off the load off the Achilles, but that's going to impact more into the knee? Not necessarily patella, but it's definitely going to give us more into the, to the knee joint itself. So again, some of these things you can do, yeah, all we're doing is we're shifting things. We're not fixing things. And that's what we do when we're only chasing pain as our only measure. Yeah, the the whole shifting and not fixing. It maybe you mentioned uh, Ebony Rio, and it reminded me of something she said uh, a few years back when she was on the podcast. Shortly after the one, the first podcast we did together, and she was talking about like double versus single leg training and isometrics, and even in like double leg training, you can find ways to hide for things to hide sometimes, whereas single leg nothing can hide. And and so it's almost like you got to really pin the body down, you know, and put that isometric on, you know, like, and just give it no, no room to hide or shift things around in so many ways. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing for, for amateurs who don't have the person who does the diagnostic. Because if I don't know exactly what I need to do, because I don't have somebody who is really good at diagnosing where my tendonitis is, I, I've got something in the front of my hip. I've got something in back. It's okay for Achilles because we all, okay, there's the Achilles. So you, there's not really other muscles and other tendons going through there. There is a little posterior tip that we can get. And, but if you can identify exactly which tendon it is, we can put load through it really easily. The hardest part a lot of times is having the expert to come in and say, this is what the real underlying problem is. And if you fix this, all the other stuff goes away. And that's where really, yep, I can put that single leg isometric. Perfect. But what I want to do is I want to make sure that when I'm doing my single leg isometric, I'm, t I'm going after the tendon that's really the problem mm -hmm. here because we're going to compensate because oh, yeah. we want to do that movement. We want to go out for our run. So we're going to do that by compensating by 
And then the pain that we feel a lot of times is that compensatory pain is not actually the originating pain. So having that, that person who can really well diagnose which tendon is really the cause, that's the key to it. And that's where, you know, if I'm going to spend any money at all, it's to, to get somebody that I trust as a, as a diagnostician to tell me which one that I need to address. Because as soon as I know, I can put an isometric through it. The problem is, is it, is it really this or is, it, is this a compensation for whatever is underlying the real problem? And for most of your listeners, it's really going to be that if you can identify which tendon, totally fine. Because then what, what we can do is we can give you isolated, specific exercises that are going to fix them. Yeah, that makes sense. It's in thinking about human beings as being like incredibly adaptable. It's it's interesting to think about um like yeah how how we can use that adaptability to shift out of hey this like if you mentioned even the tendon with the with the donut you know use that adaptability like hey let me get away from the donut part and and shift into the strong tissue i was thinking about i was doing a podcast with Jake Tour recently i was talking about one of the best things for my achilles in the last yeah, and honestly even my knee uh, right knee had given me trouble for years and it's pretty much fine now um but was running on ri- a riverbed in rocks all sorts of very different rocks like all you know all different landings and it was also something where i didn't really get into much dorsiflexion because like you land on a rock and you keep your ankle pretty you know rigid so that achilles doesn't get stretched but it's almost like i wonder if that type of mechanism is almost training the donut really or not the donut the, the area around the donut really well if that makes sense like you're training all the options that weren't the actual injury or something yeah. like that so the reason for that and the reason that we get into problems when we run on sand or when we run on uneven surfaces is that what it does is it changes the mechanics so again tendon is a viscoelastic tissue when i'm running on a hard surface what i'm doing is that impact force is greater that means there's going to be greater strain yes but what that also means is that my tendon is stiffer and so that's because I, the load is faster because there's, I'm not losing any load into the surface. When I'm running on sand and it gives, or when I'm running on a gymnastics mat and it gives and everything is giving, now what happens is as I'm going into, I'm not storing and returning energy with my tendons the same way because my tendons aren't as stiff because the the impact force is spread over a greater amount of time so it actually slows the rate at which i'm applying that load through the tendon and so what that means is now i have to use the reason why it's harder to run on sand than it is to run on on a on say you know tarmac is because now my muscle doesn't work as a spring where the tendon stretches and recoils and I just contract my muscle isometrically because now as I push down, I'm losing, I can't store the energy in my tendon. I have to use my muscle ice in it concentrically, costs more energy, and I'm going to breathe harder to produce that energy. But the other thing that it's doing is it's changing how the tendon's working. And because we're loading the tendon in a different way, it's going to have a much bigger or much different effect on the tendon. And so that's why these surfaces are going to have different, they're going to give you different responses. Because when I'm on a hard, hard surface, a really hard surface, that's going to give me a lot more stiffness with my tenants because 
each impact is going to be shorter, faster, mm-hmm. and it's going to allow me to run faster. But it's also going to mean that that tendon is going to be stiffer in the in the time that it's loaded. And if I have issues there, now, again, that's going to mean that it's going to have greater stress shielding. When I have less stiff surface that I'm running on, now that's going to really actually cause me to, to wherever I've got problems, I'm not going to be able to stress shield quite as well because that healthy tissue isn't quite as stiff because the load is slower. And so the result is I'm going to get more load a little bit more into the the actual damage part. And so that has the potential to cause a little bit more damage. So all of these things, if people have a history of tendon problems, they go out and they're on the, on the sand and suddenly it aggravates everything. It's down to this idea that the tendon is viscoelastic. And when we're taking that in, that what that means is that the stiffer or the faster I load my tendon, the stiffer it is. So one of the reasons we say go out and do most of your mileage slow is because when you're running slowly relative to what you normally run, what you're doing is your impact force is lower mm-hmm. and the stiffness of uh, the stiffness or the strain, the, the stiffness of the tendon because you're, the impact force is less. And it's slower. Now the stiffness of that tendon is less. And so the impact on the tendon is going to be less. So one of the reasons why when a lot of runners will shift from doing their road work to doing their track work, they're going to do two things that are going to really put their tendons that where lots of people get muscle and tendon problems in those first few uh, track sessions. One, they're going to change their shoes so that they have less rise so that they're going to now be more forefoot. That's fine. That's going to be good for your speed. But what you're also doing is now you're running faster on a harder surface. And so now what you're doing is you are increasing the stiffness of that tissue. And so if you are not used to that because you haven't done any fast work and you haven't done it, that's going to put a greater strain on that, on that, on that connective tissue. And so that's one of the reasons why our muscles and tendons get a lot more sore in those first few track workouts because now we've shifted our shoes and we've shifted our surface. We've increased the speed at which we're training. That viscoelastic tissue is stiffer. That means my muscle is actually going to feel more pain from the same running because mm. instead of the muscles, uh, instead of the tendon stretching like it would do if we're on a, a softer surface or running slower, it doesn't stretch as much. So that means the muscle is going to have to stretch more to do that movement. And that's why we get a lot more muscle soreness in the few days after we do our first couple of track sessions. On the level of supplements, Lost Empire Herbs has been my go-to for the last five years. As someone who's constantly observing nature in motion to help me understand movement better, so too do I draw from nature in my supplementation regime. If you want to check out some of my favorite supplements for energy, strength, and enhancing the total impact of your training regimen, uh, things such as Shiliagit, which has been well-recommended by many strength coaches, the Phoenix Formula, which was my original Lost Empire Herbs supplement that really made me a believer in the power of herbalism, things like pine pollen, mushroom tinctures, and more, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can use the code JOEL15, that's joel one five for 15% off your order. Definitely check out Lost Empire Herbs. They're an awesome company and will really help that total aspect of your performance training process. As you're talking, I was actually thinking about so with it was something actually I'd never thought about before in light of um like my creek run where I run on all these rocks 
is that I mean, technically, a rock is a hard surface, like like you know, like running on the road. But if you looked at my pace, it's probably almost twice as slow because I have to like mindfully be like, oh, there's the next rock, there's the next rock, or it's a little lateral or whatever. But it, in in doing that. I'm also yielding a lot more because you have to find a balance point on a lot, a lot of rocks. So it's like it's almost like running in a way that each step is a yield far more. I mean, it's it's subtle, but it's still way more than like just, you know, you know, bam, bam, bam on a road or whatever. And I, I hadn't really thought about that potential factor. It is something I thought about a lot while I was actually running is almost feel like this must be like what a caveman must feel like. You're feeling like a, a symbiosis with the surface you know you're going into the surface and i'd run in minimal shoes so you like you feel the rock and then you kind of go down into it enough to find the balance point and then you spring off to your next step but that's a lot different than hey just go run you know 630 mile pace on the road where each contact is repeated the same and probably less the nature of the yielding is probably a little less over time and now that I say yeah, that, there's like, almost hey, that no yield to. because you're storing and returning the energy because your your muscles are working differently your tendons are working differently because the surface is harder and the the contact is with the ground is lesser and so basically that means that your movement has to be much much faster and that 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 movement through being faster means that the the tendons are going to be stiffer and that means that the whole system is going to work very differently yeah it's almost like in a sense um i mean the ultimate polarity right is like sprinting fast and then lifting something heavy and slow but it's almost like within even running, there's a little bit of a polarity. <laughs> you know, you can, you can find a different way to run that doesn't, that has more yielding to it, you know, to, yeah. I guess, recover, recover things. Yeah. And that's also, again, why, why there's that kind of idea of this, lots of the, lots of your distance is going to be done slowly. And then when you do fast work, you're going to do fast work, small, short, fast work. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are going to come together. But the amount of short, fast work when we run, is a lot less than say if we're a rower or a swimmer because if i'm a swimmer i can yeah. i can push you hugely because the impact force is almost nothing if i'm a rower if you look at rowing the olympic rowers are spending 30 hours a week in the in a boat if you have a, a runner who's going to spend 30 hours a week running they're going to be injured and that's because it's what we call mechanical fatigue and so the mechanical fatigue component is 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 one of the three fatigues that you have mechanical metabolic and neurological so then metabolic is how many carbohydrates to use how many fats to use how much atp are you using to do that activity that we can regenerate really quickly most obvious in swimming you can go out swim a world record in the morning swim a world record in the evening there's no runner in the world who's going to do that because that for them the mechanical fatigue the impact force that has on your tendons ligaments connective tissues muscles all of those things is very minimal because it's a body weight supported sport. So, you know, if you look at the amount of time you can train, if you're a cyclist, yeah. If you can stand sitting on that little seat for six hours a day, you can cycle six hours a day. No problem. You can't do that if you're a runner. And it's just because of that impact force and what that impact force does to all of these connective tissues that we're talking about. Yeah, it is such a, a linchpin there with that connective tissue. I, I remember in my time doing strength and conditioning or strength training for swimming and coming from a track background and looking at, you know, their yards, their volume, I started to figure out or the specific workouts for like a 100 meter or 100 yard swimmer versus a 400 meter track sprinter who ran the same equivalent time for their competition. And the swimmers were doing about, 
about four times as much volume, you know, relatively speaking, maybe even a little bit more. And I spent some time thinking about that too, because swimming is also notorious for just like crazy training or overdoing it. I suppose if you aren't getting hurt necessarily from the training, then you could that the coach, you know, a coach be like, oh, well, we got away with this many yards last week. Well, we can get away with this many yards. You know, it's almost like because you don't have that. I mean, you do eventually people's shoulders blow up and stuff, but you know, maybe for some people who don't have that necessary, like that limiter, they, it's given them license to try to go further with it. And, you know, there's a pushback now with swimming and, and getting too carried with yardage and stuff. But it, it is interesting to think about that. Yeah. Like mechanical linchpin that causes that. Absolutely. And that's, it's for anybody who's a strength and conditioning coach, that's the number one thing you're looking at because you're looking at basically what's the mechanical fatigue that I've got from practice and so if I'm an American football, you know, strength and conditioning coach, that mechanical fatigue is huge because 40 mile an hour car crashes every, every time they're going to play 40 mm-hmm. times in a game. Okay. Now I need to then say, okay, we're going to change training in the gym so that we're going to minimize that type of mechanical fatigue. And, but if I'm looking at a swimmer, I've got the exact opposite where I don't have any of that impact force. And now maybe I can actually bring that in actually improve performance and so that in the gym i might need to do some some plyometric fast work with a swimmer Mm -hmm. i'm never going to do that with an american football player during Mm -hmm. season because they've already got all the kind of plyometric load they're going to need through playing games and practice now what i'm going to do is i'm going to do other types of loading in the gym that are going to be more health-based work whereas a swimmer i'm going to do some performance work in the gym because Mm -hmm. i need them to get some of the some of the stiffness in specific areas so that they can actually perform at a higher level. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting to think about that. Yeah. That low hanging fruit and the ways that you can go after that, whether it is on the performance uh, spectrum uh, or the health end. And I think that relates to the rock climbing anecdote too, that you were, you were giving me. And I, rock climbing is so fascinating to me as well, just because I, I just mentioned you know, earlier or before we started recording, like I just started rock climbing again. I used to quite a bit and it blows me away how weak my fingers are when I start. And I think to myself, all right, this is, I know this is muscular, but I know a massive amount is also connective tissue adaptations. And then I think about my feet while well, I was like, my feet are always loading, you know, and like, it's amazing how when your hands get deloaded, you you versus when you're climbing all the time. But I know you had, um, yeah, some, some um, work you'd been doing with rock climbers. So I'd be really interested to hear about that as a, like a gateway to more of the performance and the isometric oriented side of things we'll chat about. Yeah, sure. So, so basically, you know, the thing that always that a lot of people have a hard time with is there's, there's no muscles in your fingers. So, so it's all tendons and it's all pulleys. And so rock climbers get lots of issues with their tendons and their, and their pulleys. And, and so basically we had been doing a lot of research. I published a review article that kind of went over, summarized the research that if you're trying to improve performance, that it doesn't seem to matter how much you know, what percentage of your maximum load you put on the tendon. It doesn't seem to matter how frequently you load them. So if you load them at a walking pace versus a running pace, and it doesn't seem to matter, you know, basically none of those kind of classical measures that SNC coaches would have used seem to matter. The thing that seemed to matter was that after about 10 minutes, the, ten, the, the tendon cells stop responding to it. And so we did the, we used our little engineered ligaments and we basically stretched them for 10 minutes 
And what we could do is we could stretch them for 10 minutes, rest them for, for five and a half hours, five hours and 50 minutes, stretch them for 10 minutes. So do four 10-minute stretches a day versus because they're engineered ligaments, I can load them 24 hours a day. And so when I loaded them 24 hours a day, their collagen went up about fivefold. When I loaded them 40 minutes a day, their collagen went up even twice as much as that. So it went up tenfold. And so what that told us is that short bouts of activity are really with these periods of rest are going to be useful for tenons. And and so we came up with this 10-minute program where you don't have to put a lot of load through it. And and these two brothers, the Abrahams, um, basically they they're two rock climbers, they're professional rock climbers, and they one of them had a history of lots of hand injuries, lots of tendon problems. And so his physical therapist gave him the article and they came up with this program where they did 10 minutes of hanging, just no hangs is what they called it, on a fingerboard where they would just put part of their body weight onto their fingers and they would just hold for 10 seconds to 30 seconds. And and they would do these holds and then they would change the hold and they would do this. And what they found is, and the brother did it um, twice a day and then they've done it twice or once a day from there. And the brothers are Emil Abrahams, and basically we now call these their Abrahams because it's a partial body weight hang. And the standard is to to load yourself up with all the weights you can do and do a max hang and just hold there with the maximum amount. And so we went in to try and see, is that partial hang, is what we find in these little engineered tissues something we see in people? And sure enough, when we do the analysis, there's a there's a climbing app that people use, and basically what they do is they go in and they'll say this is what my max what, what my max hang is. Then they'll train for a certain period of time. But we went back into all the data and took people who only climbed, people who did Abrahams, people who did max hangs, and then people who did both of them together. And what we found is that the people who did max hangs and the people who did partial hangs, these Abrahams, basically they increased the same amount. There was no difference between them, even though one of them was using more than their body weight and one of them was using way, way less than their body. And then the interest, the most interesting thing to us is that when they, the people who did both of them together actually had exactly an additive effect. Hmm. So what we see is about 2% improvement, 2.7, 3.2, somewhere in there. And then when you do both of them together, you get like five, five or 6% improvement. And so what it really kind of suggests is that Look, the the max hang is really going to be important because that's what you're testing on. You're testing on as much weight as you can. But when you're doing that, again, the load is going to go through the tendon differently. And so when I do a partial hang, I can get almost the same effect with a fraction of the load, so a fraction of the mechanical fatigue, but I'm getting the signal to the cells so that the cells get the signal to adapt. And they're adapting very similar to somebody who's got a much bigger signal. When we get, why do we get the additive effect? It's probably because the Abrahams are, are much more health related. They're improving the health of the tissue. So that when somebody is practicing with their max hangs and they're using lots and lots of weight, and if they get any problems within their within the tendons or the pulleys, now when they do their Abrahams, now it's actually helping to fix those problems that they get. And so now what what we're doing is we're doing exactly what we've told all strength and conditioning coaches to do, which combine your performance with your with your kind of health-based movements. And what we're seeing is that we're getting this additive effect of the two. 
And so it's really cool because the climbing only group, there's no change in grip in, in max hang. The two groups individually, they have the same improvement. And then when you add them together, you get an additive effect. So, so it's really telling us that the things that we had discovered in our little engineered ligaments are, are actually real. They work in people. Yeah, I, I love seeing those anecdotes show up in different, they, like the more different sports and activities, I feel like sometimes you can point to, it just kind of paints more of that picture. And I, that uh, two things popped in my head as you were talking about that one, maybe fits a little bit with something you mentioned on our first podcast. It's like the, the research on like heavy squatting and depth jumping on vertical jump. It's like the and these this study is probably like 30 years old who knows like it's really it's one of the first studies i ever remember reading kind of almost the same thing as like the sprint groups that did overspeed and resisted it's like when you do the polarities of the thing you get an additive effect and the research went and i don't i i can't name it um it's just a study that rings a bell in my head but it was basically a group that did heavy squatting a group that did depth jumping only and then a group that did both heavy squatting and depth jumping and of course it was like the heavy squatting group improved vertical jump like three or five centimeters. Same thing with the depth jump group. And then the group that did both was like nine or 10 centimeters. It was like a multiplication. And I think about even um, Jay Schrader is a coach who does or prescribes long extreme isometrics. He calls them basically pulling into a stretch range in like a lunge or a push up or whatever you're doing. Uh, and a warm up that's inspired from him, right? I believe he used was like you do the ISO hold, the long hold, and then you do a bunch of like depth drops from a box, and then you know go do whatever. <laughs> so it's almost like the same thing. And I, I think sometimes we think about long isometrics as only oh well, isn't that endurance? Like it shouldn't explosive athletes not do it? But it's like no, it's 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 the polarity. It's like the like so, you said, it's yeah. Additive. We we talk about it and and. You know, isometrics can go from a fraction of a second up to 30 seconds or longer. And so what we're doing, what we talk about it as is we talk about is performance moves and we talk about is health moves. The health of the tissue is going to be improved the longer the isometric goes. The heavier the weight, the slower you move, the slower you move, the more stretch there is in the tendon, the more healthy that movement is. So that's, again, what the similarity between the studies you're talking about and the study that we're just finishing in with the, this retrospective look at the climbers, when they're doing these these ballistic plyometrics, basically that's the performance side of things. That's the high velocity, super high velocity, super high stiffness. Now what you're going to do is you're going to get adaptations to that high stiffness, high strain situation. Now what we're going to do is we're going to combine that with something that's got much, much slower velocity. And we would go to something like a long isometric hold. We would probably find that we would see even better adaptation with those two combined. Because what we're doing when we do the isometric, remember what I talked about early when we said, look, if you've got a tendon problem and you start jabbing your tendon with something to, to, to try and you know get some magical solution in there, what you're doing is you're you're actually injuring the healthy part. And what that does is that prevents the healthy part from shielding the damaged part from the load. That is maximized when we undergo what's called stress relaxation. And when stress relaxation is, is when I do an isometric and I hold that isometric for 10 to 30 seconds, what happens is now what's going to happen, the, the healthy part of that connective tissue is going to start to relax. And as it starts to relax, there's going to be a decrease in stiffness within the healthy part of the tissue. 
Normally, the healthy part is shielding the scar from the load. And that's what causes the scar is that it doesn't feel the load. So if I hold that isometric for 30 seconds, the healthy part relaxes. Now the scar is actually stiffer than the healthy part. And now it's going to take on the load. Mm. Remember back to the example I gave it. If we start a tug of and the rock is there pulling and I'm there pulling at the beginning, beginning only going to feel the rock force. But if we go and go and go and it's a one to two minute thing and the rock has very low endurance because he doesn't do any because, you know, endurance kills his strength gains with a KILZ. Um, basically, as time goes on, my percentage, how much load I can I'm contributing goes way up because he's getting weaker mm -hmm. because his endurance is low. So what's going to happen is I'm going to contribute more and more because he's contributing less and less. And so as that fatigue sets in or as this you know, change in structure happens within the healthy tissue, now the, the scarred tissue gets that load signal. And when it gets the load signal, it then can fix the mm -hmm. scar. That's the component that everybody needs to really understand is that you can fix the scar. You can fill the hole. You can do all of these things that are going to fix your connective tissue, your tendons. All you're doing is you're holding that isometric for a long period of time. That's why we call it a health movement, because it's going to basically get even tension across the whole tissue. The whole tissue is going to get the signal that this is the direction that load is coming, and this is where you need to make collagen, and this is the direction the collagen should be made in. And when you get that, and you continue to do that for, you know, we've done it for as little as... 50 days in an athlete where we've got imaging data on the on the patellar tendon, we can see patellar tendon holes being filled in within 50 days of isometric loading. It, once, you can do it twice a day if, if, it, if you are a high-level athlete. But again, the twice a day, you, you're spreading those workouts out pretty much at the beginning and the end of your day. You know, even if you're a, not a high-level athlete and you really are truly keen on getting back or, or actually staying in the sport that you love, doing it twice a day is totally is totally fine, even when you're doing the other loading. So we did a bunch of stuff with golfers because golfers get golfer's elbow and tennis elbow as they do a lot of swinging because they go, they swing. There's a quick jerk movement when they hit the grass or they hit the mat that they're on. And most golfers actually find that they get golfers or tennis elbow when they switch mm. to a mat off of off of the grass. Same thing when you run on a different surface because the, the mat gives you more resistance. So as you go through, the mat is pushing in the opposite direction more. I get more of that jerk on my tendon. That's going to cause more of the issue. We take them through long isometric holds, either in the inversion or the or the externally rotated situation, depending whether it's golfers or tennis elbow, you can do those holds, fix the tendon, even while you're still playing golf. So we've done it with the basketball players. We, we do the isometric loading, even though they're playing 50 games in the NBA and they're practicing, you know, they're playing every third day and they're practicing every day that they're not playing a game. We're still filling in the hole because when they're running, jumping, doing these incredibly ballistic movements the injured area is stress shielded it doesn't feel anything so now when i go back and i do my isometric now that's the only time when that system that 
tissue, actually, the scar feels the load. Now it feels a load. Now, oh, it's this direction. So the cells reorient themselves and they start making collagen in that direction. So it doesn't matter if you're still playing, you're still going on the track and you're doing your workouts, you're still doing whatever. What you want to do is you want to incorporate these in either, you know, at least once a day. And then, you know, if especially if you have really bad, a long history of tendon problems, you could do it as your activation, long isometric hold in the in the warm-up as part of your activation, because that's going to help you get a signal through there. And then doing it a concerted effort that's a connective tissue specific workout, six to eight hours either before or after your other workout. Now what you've got is you've got a really good solid way of doing that. Yeah, I love that. I I had never thought about that or heard that before in the sense that I really enjoy using long isometrics as part of the warm up process for athletes. But I had always just thought of it more as and maybe there's other there's other elements. You could say it's it's a it's a loaded stretch. You maybe have lactate in the Cori cycle at a little bit of that reusable ATP or something. There's, you know, it's a polarity. Um, and then you get into the workout. I've always, I've just always felt like it went over really well. I remember there was one day in the gym, we, every, every athlete who walked in, we warmed up with like a two or three minute isometric lunge hold, some depth, drop, like maybe 30 altitude drops. And then they'd run a 20 meter sprint. And like everyone who did that ran either PR'd or ran really close to their PR multiple times. I did as well as in terms of like age related PRs. And, but I never thought about it as you just mentioned that. Like that, to me, that's so fascinating that like the body's adaptability, we're shielding that spot and the isometric actually like softens the body. So now we can work that, that tissue. And it's amazing. That's, it's, it's really, and with the ice or the tendons being a linchpin, it's such an amazing thought. In fact, my, my creek running now. I'm gonna do some like calf, you know, some single leg stand like ISOs for two or three minutes first, and now see how that goes. You know, I think that'll be a multiplying effect on the long, probably the long term, not just the short term, but like the long term um, benefit. Yeah, it makes me think like, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Um, get something. There. Yeah. So the one thing that happens is as you're doing those long ISOs, you're going to you're going to basically have you're changing the you're in a short period of time changing the mechanics of the tendon. You're basically making it a little less stiff while you're doing that. And so that what that does is now, now that's less stiff. Now what happens is the muscle can actually be within a, shortened, a, a shorter range. So when my tendon is super stiff, so anytime I do a movement, it's a muscle tendon unit. So the muscle and the tendon both have to stretch in order to allow that movement. If I've done something to decrease the stiffness of the tendon, we all know this. If I do a lot of passive stretching before I do a sprint, what's going to happen is my performance is going to go down because I'm not storing and returning as much energy in there. Now, instead, if I do it as an activation where I'm going to contract that muscle hard, but I'm not going to let it lengthen or I'm not going to let it shorten, I should say. Now, what's happening is now I'm getting activation of a lot of these same systems without having that negative component. And we think the negative component is actually of the passive stretch is actually just that, look, we're getting two signals, one from the Golgi tendon organ that's saying, hey, we're stretched. There's a lot of force going through here. We need to turn this off. And then one from the muscle spindle, which is like, okay, I'm stretching, I'm stretching. So actually, sorry, the muscle spindle is stretching a long way because we're we're holding a passive stretch. So it's telling me that I need to relax that muscle. And then my Golgi tendon organ, because it's supposed to sense tension, there's not a lot of tension here. So now we've got this 
this disparity between these two sensory organs. So now that's going to set us up for not actually being able to use our, our reflex arcs the way that we could should in order to allow us to, to do that movement really quickly. Now when we activate, now we've got lots of load going through the Golgi tendon organ, but we're still in a long position. So our, our muscle spindle is saying, yes, we're in a long position. So now everything is, is working together. So both of those sensory systems are working together. So we don't have as much of the negative impact of, that we would have if it was a passive stretch on the performance that's going to come afterward. But by doing that, that long hold, what we've done is we've allowed the tendon to, to now be a little bit more, um, to have a little bit greater range. So that means the muscle is now going to work more in its optimal range instead of being in a longer situation. Yeah, with, um, with the isometrics, one of the things I wanted to mention or ask you about was I think you, I think you actually mentioned the term, but like, like the jerk value of the isometric, mm-hmm. like low jerk or high jerk isometrics. And I believe you were um, in or a part of Alex Natera and, and Sportsmith's isometric course. And I know I've had Alex on with some of like the, the max isos where you're like getting a sprint or a run specific position and you, you push in the bar as hard as you can. Um, I'm interested in your take on how like a longer, like how would those uh, like a like a workout session look like ramping up with like longer holds or just tell me a little bit about some of those values as you see them uh, with the health and performance uh, continuum. Yeah, so so we use low jerk isometrics when we're recovering from injury because of what we understand and what, what kind of we've discussed so far is that jerk is the thing that's causing a lot of the damage completely. So it's also what we're adapting to to improve our performance. So jerk is really important for that improving performance component, but at the same time, it's the thing that can cause the most damage to the connective tissue. There's good data that shows that if you do high jerk movements, you actually change the 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 coiling of the collagen triple helix molecule. Mm-hmm. So that what that means is the faster I load. And so again, just to make sure everybody knows, jerk is a physical property. So where I am is my location. The rate of change in my location is my velocity. The rate of change in my velocity is my acceleration. The rate of change in my acceleration is jerk. Okay, so, so jerk is when I'm accelerating in two different directions. So that means when I hit the ground, I'm accelerating up, gravity is pulling me down. So now there's jerk. Um, when I do, say, a clean and I'm going to go off and I'm going to hit the bar and I'm going to get that catch, that catch is jerk because the bar is accelerating down due to gravity. I'm accelerating up. There's going to be that moment where we have that huge jerk. If I'm swinging a golf club, all of those things, if I swing a tennis racket, we know tennis elbow, you're hitting a little tennis ball. It's nothing. It's always nothing. Why do I, why do I, get a, why do I damage my, my tendon? You damage the tendon because the ball's going one direction, you're going the other direction. You have a lot of jerk. And if you're unaccustomed to it, it's going to cause damage. So when we've got somebody who just damaged the tissue, the first thing we want to do is I told you that the reason that you get a scar is because you stress shield. So you've got a little injury, our body stress shields, and that's really bad. Well, what do we do if somebody gets an acute injury? Well, we put them into a boot or we, we say rest. That's, you know, mechanical stress shielding. So all the boot does is it takes all the, all the load off the tendon in the Achilles example. If I do the same thing, so I put myself in elbow brace so I don't load my, my elbow tendon so I don't get tennis. All I'm doing is making things worse. 
I need to get load through that as soon as possible in order to fix it. And we've got data that shows that if I put a, the ankle of a rat into a into a tube so that it can't straighten the, the foot, within three days, I've lost 10% of muscle mass. I've lost 20% of the collagen mass within the tendons. Oh, wow. I've changed the tendon so that if you look at it, it looks like a scar and the mechanics of the tendon are dramatically different. So three that's three days in a boot. So what that tells us is that that idea, and Michael Kerr has shown that if I mobilize somebody and I put them onto a training program, two days after they injure themselves versus nine days after they injure themselves, the ones who start at two days get back 25% faster than the ones that started at nine days. What it tells us is we want to load really early. But we also know that there's potential to make things worse. But remember, if the force, if the thing that causes the injury is jerk, all we have to do is minimize the jerk, get load through it. And so what we do is we do low jerk isometrics. All that means is you develop force slowly over time. So over a five-second period, you go from whatever force, you, you go from no force to a force that, again, depending on the athlete, maybe a two out of 10. But if you've got an athlete who's super you know, toxic masculinity and they think no, nothing hurts me, then we say no, for, no pain at all. If you've got somebody who's really sensitive, maybe we say a three to four. Yeah. You adjust it, but basically you're looking for kind of a generalized feeling that there's, oh yeah, something sore there, but it's not like, oh, what pinpoint pain. So you go slowly over about five second period, you ramp up the force, and then you just hold it there. Because the tissue is newly injured, it's not super strong. So what that means is I don't need to put a lot of force through it. But what I do need to do is I need to get some force through it so that I can get out what it's going to do. It's going gonna, it's gonna to pump out inf inflammation, any, any extra liquid there. It's going to give my cells a signal for, okay, this is the direction that things should be going. And really, the, the core for us is to use the inflammatory signals that are there together with the load. And the reason I say that is we just published a paper, it just came out a couple of weeks ago, that shows that if you, if you put in inflammatory signals, the signals that your cells, your inflammatory cells produce when you have an acute injury, what happens is you decrease the stiffness of your tendon or ligament. And so that's why a lot of people say, oh, you got to take anti-inflammatories, you got to do all this. We, we don't say that because basically what I told you is that if if you're going to inject yourself with with magical magical peptides, what you're doing is you're damaging the tissue, and that can decrease stress shielding. So what's happening when we have inflammation? So those inflammatory signals are making it so that we actually don't have as much stiffness in the healthy part. So I can get more load through the injured part with a less overall load. So now I don't have to produce tons of force day one after surgery. I can just produce a little bit of force because the tendon and the muscle that it's connected to, they all aren't mechanically as strong as they would have been days before. And now I can get the same signal to those cells. And again, that short period of time, that five to 10 minute period of time. And now all I'm going to do is slowly develop force so they minimize jerk. Hold it there for 30 seconds so that I get maximum relaxation of the healthy part, maximum amount of signal to the to the injured part, and I'm going to slowly let the force off five seconds. And so that'll take me 
So that's like a, a 30 second isometric. We'll do that four times with two minutes of rest in between. That's all I need to do. That's all you need to do in order for that tissue to regenerate a lot faster than what you would see normally. As you're talking through this, something that popped up in my head as, um, I guess, an analogy to the muscle versus the tendon, as you had mentioned, the like the muscle degraded 10% in three days, but the tendon was 20, or the collagen was like 20. It's almost like, and tell me if you would agree with this or if there's a different direction, but it's almost as if the muscle is like kind of like the earth element. It's more grounded, more slow changing, and the tendon is almost more analogous to water. Like it's almost more fluid than the muscle. Would you say that's accurate? So, so there's data from the lab that I'm in here in Maastricht that shows that they used, um, again, used heavy phenylalanine to measure turnover of protein within muscle within all of the all of the all of the tissues within the joint and what they found was that and these are people who are getting total knee replacement so they give them they give them the the phenylalanine for six hours before surgery they then take out all the tissues they measure how much new protein has been made in each of those tissues so muscle everybody thinks it's super dynamic it's going to allow us to grow it has a turnover rate of about two percent per day the ACL at about a 4% per day. So it's actually twice what you see in the in muscle. The PCL, which isn't loaded as much, it had less than 2%. So it had less mm-hmm. than muscle. So, so again, that's the effect of the load. The load has a huge effect on protein turnover. Patellar tendon, everybody thinks, oh, this is, it adapts so slowly because we need to, and that's why we have to have, you know, periodized training to let the tendons catch up. Actually, the the patellar tendon actually has a higher turnover rate than the than the skeletal muscle, than the quad muscle. So again, this idea that you that you're saying is that the muscle is very very dynamic. Yes, it's going to change really quickly. You're going to lose muscle mass. Like and again, Luke's shown that within five days of of immobilizing in a cast, you're going to lose about two percent of your muscle mass from there. And that doesn't seem like much, but then think about that it's going to take you at least 12 weeks to build that up. So in five days, I'm going to lose what it's going to take me 12 weeks to build back up. So again, very dynamic tissue. Now when we talk about connective tissues, we're going to see that that's actually maybe a little bit higher. Because again, within three days, I'm losing, at least in the rats, we're losing 20% of the collagen within the tendon. So yes, it is... These are very dynamic tissues that people kind of assume don't change um, because of of data that that again there's complications, but there's data from from a group in Copenhagen, Michael Kerr's group, who's one of the best in the world at, at tendon, and they show that the the tendon, the collagen within the central core of your Achilles, is the same as it was when you were 18 years old. So it doesn't turn over, whereas Luke's showing that it turns over faster than muscle. So again, there there are differences there, but the reality is that we see um, very quick adaptations within tendons, within ligaments. Um, within eight months of, of soccer training, women's ACL is bigger than it was before. But that also means, since the, that was a study done in college-level athletes, that in the at the end of the season to the beginning of the season, their their ACL got a lot smaller because it got a lot bigger in the eight months that they were training. So basically, highly dynamic tissue that if we do what we're told, which is rest, ice, compress, whatever the elevate, basically we've 
we can almost completely make a scar by doing those three, those four things. And so the reality is that, and this is what I, I tell people when I'm writing grants, is that the first cast that is recorded was found in, you know, in Egyptian you know, writings that talked about this immobilized and then there's a mobilizer that was found when they excavated an Egyptian, you know, burial site that was 4,500 years old. Basically, we're using the same technology that, to fix tendon problems that we used 4,500 years ago. That's not state of the art. We need to come up with new things. And that's where a lot of the stuff where it's early loading, whether it's now coming in with different things that can accelerate the effects of that load. All of those things are going to hopefully in the next few years dramatically change how we address these tendon ligament musculoskeletal injuries. It's almost kind of ironic that you mentioned like rice and like doing rice and then taking anti-inflammatories is almost the opposite of walk it off. You know, like walk it off would be so much better <laughs> than, than rice yeah. to take anti-inflammatories. So in our paper where we where we showed the negative effects of these cytokines, these immune, these, uh, immune cell uh, messengers, we also inhibited using a drug that blocked one of the big uh, inflammatory pathways. And what we did was we made the ligaments almost useless because inflammation is required. Certain, um, certain types and certain amount of inflammation is required for the proper function of our tendons and ligaments. When we eliminate it using ice, using massive anti-inflammatories, using other things that are designed to decrease all inflammation, what we see is our, our ligaments and tendons become horrible. So, so that's that again is another one of those things that, that we weren't expecting because we were like, oh, all we have to do is block this inflammatory pathway. We're going to see a great effect. Well, we blocked it and we destroyed the ligaments. True, we then used a different drug that blocked a different aspect of inflammation and we made things better. But again, what it means is that some inflammation is required, but that we get we that there's an overstimulation. And if we block a certain amount of it, we're gonna get we're gonna improve uh, much better than if we block all of it. And so that's where we use movement. We use movement to decrease inflammation because it's gonna pump out the fluid. Because that's the negative component for us. Now we're going to use movement. We're going to get that movement through there. That's going to pump out any, any fluid. That's going to decrease the inflammation. And it's also going to give us a signal now to those cells to start fixing themselves. Yeah, it's it's just so cool how like the body's natural mechanisms and, and just so much of what probably like you see in the animal kingdom of an injured animal, like, you know... <laughs> Kind of naturally, if you're okay, I can't walk on this leg for now. Now I can start testing it out, and they slowly figure it out. But like, it's it's just so interesting how we've gone so far the other direction. Like, don't don't move it at all. <laughs> you know, put ice on it, and yeah, it's it's a really yeah, it's interesting how things work in nature and how we adapt. I I did I speak in nature. Actually, I have one last question for you, and I was actually I had as the first question on the list. These uh these are always just fascinating to me. I don't know how much we could take into like this could go into actual training or whatever, but you had posted something about um, it was like mice and it was mice with a certain um, like a tendon mutation or a gene expression and they're 
jumping was like in like insanely good. I was just curious about that study and just some of the nuances yeah. with that. So so that was done by Jeff Snedeker. He's in uh, he's in um, in Switzerland in Zurich. I think he's in Zurich. Um, but basically, what they did is they overexpressed a protein called piezo, and piezo is a sensor for load is what one of the things it does. Um, and when they did that, their mice could jump massive. They were massively good jumpers. Um, when they actually, it might have been Spark even. Um, but either way, so so they've knocked out Spark, and their tendons actually, when you run them, they actually de- degenerate because they don't have this sensor of 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 the tension. And so so there's that one, and then they've done the opposite, which is they've they've put in genes that actually make them super super jumpers. The interesting thing is that. Those those same sensors or those same molecules are enriched in inflammatory cells. So we so they're also enriched in things that maybe are coming in during the during that process of of recovery from from training. And so again, that could be one of the things that blocking inflammation is bad about because if you block all the inflammation, now you've decreased whatever adaptation is coming with that. Mm. So so we don't know yet that this is specifically because look now the tenant is is much much better and we don't know how that's going to translate into something that i can use to to make an athlete better but what we know now is that is that there's a bunch of things that sense load and that when you when you can trick your body into thinking that it's getting loaded more Mm. your body actually performs at a higher level without even needing to do the load so that's really good for us, because that gives us hope that there are different ways that we can manipulate the system, either using specific exercise or specific molecules or drugs that could that could target those things that would allow us to perform at a high level. And I think that that's a lot of where the shift is happening now, or hopefully will be happening soon, is it right now we're we're kind of being led by pain. And that's one of the reasons why um people immobilize they ice they do all these things because it decreases pain but it actually impairs recovery so when we move away from pain as the outcome pain is the thing that we're looking at and we say look instead of measuring pain as our major outcome goal now we're going to measure like return to play or we're going to measure performance in a short period of time what we're going to see is that people are going to move away from all the things they did to decrease pain because yeah it doesn't hurt when i don't load it yeah, but you're you're becoming you know you're becoming one of those people in Wally who sits on a little on a little wheelchair the whole time and they can't actually use their body anymore. Yes, it doesn't hurt, but it's also not getting any better, and it's not going to get you to the point where you can get back out and run or jump or or play your sport anymore. So yeah, I'm decreasing pain in the short term, but I'm having a lot more pain in the long term, and it's not going to actually benefit me. Whereas if I go ahead and I load, I'm not going to increase pain, really. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to to say, look, no pain, no gain. We're going to. No, we're trying to minimize the amount of pain to like a generalized sense of soreness. But what we want to get is we we need to get that load through there. And we need to understand that that load is going to bring. It might bring some inflammation. It might bring some other stuff. But it's also going to pump out fluid, so it's actually going to feel better after I've done the loading because now there's less fluid in there because each time I pull on it, all the liquid that's in that tissue squeezes out. So if I've got inflammation coming in, 
then I've just squeezed it out by doing a 30-second isometric. So there's all kinds of things that I can do to decrease pain without actually having to have a negative impact on, on the recovery and repair of that tissue. And using those low jerk isometrics allows us to load. And we've taken people the day that they've done surgery and we've started loading them day, the day of surgery or one to two days after surgery. Um, the case study that I presented with Alex in his in in the Sportsmith group was was one where we had to fight with the orthopedic surgeons. The orthopedic surgeon wanted six weeks without movement. We wanted to work. We wanted to load the same day. We came to an agreement of I think it was nine days, but we got that athlete back fully five weeks faster than they'd ever gotten the athletes back before from that hamstring injury that they had, where it was a hamstring pull that caught that needed surgical repair. But we started loading at nine days and Dave Powers did a great job of all the loading. But one of the key things was just getting in there and adding the load early. And orthopedic surgeons are scared to do that initially because they're worried it's going to tear apart. It's not going to tear apart. We're not putting max load through there. We're just putting a sufficient load to get signals to cells so that they can do what they're designed to do, which is to produce collagen in a specifically oriented fashion. And if we can work together with those orthopedic surgeons, they get experience with, oh, look, we got back five weeks faster when we started at nine days instead of six weeks. Oh, let's try it at two days. Now what we've got is we've got buy-in because they believe that what we're doing is going to work. Now we can start getting closer to injury. So when I do anything stupid, like twist an ankle, do anything like that, I'm loading that same day. I'm going through the motion. And because of that, I'm able to still go out and train the next day without without pain, simply because I'm using the things that we're talking about here. I'm avoiding all the things that are the standard of care. I'm using slow, low jerk isometrics. I'm using mobility as a way to decrease inflammation, not using anything external to decrease inflammation. And I'm I'm kind of loading in these bouts throughout the day and what that is allowing me to do is allowing my tissue to actually respond faster and use some of the natural things that we do, like inflammation as a positive effect, so that I can regenerate that tissue faster and I can get back to full activity faster. It's so interesting yeah, how we, we think about words like inflammation and it's only negative. Oh, it's only, let's get rid of all of it. You know, like, and there's that positive there. And even like you said, with the loading too, it's like, it's almost like sometimes people want to so, they're so afraid of any risk or as they perceive it, you know, when it's like, well, it's not actually that risky if you have an appropriate loading. And it's, it's cool to think of how we can load those things so quickly. And even as you said too, going back, like, I, I think of it as, you know, it's this beautiful dance between, you mentioned like the mice and the superintendents and like, like when we drop, when we do like depth jumps or things that really were parkour, but then on the other end, we have all the restorative loading and the isometric holds and all these things are from the martial arts, the horse stance, you know, hold the horse stance for however long if you did parkour and horse stance back and forth. Um, but I, yeah, so, so a lot of times what people get into is they get into, look, we're going to do one type of loading and then they always get one type of injury. Mm -hmm. And really what we need to do is we need to have both types. And that's, again, that's what the climbing study shows. Long, slow holds, heavy, short holds. Oh, look, you put them together, they get they get an additive effect. So if I've got a football American football player, yeah, I'm going to do lots of heavy, slow work. If I've got somebody who doesn't have as much plyometric load, now I'm going to do a little bit of plyometric load. If I've got, and we didn't talk about the difference between women and men, 
I would load women differently than men, especially in the hamstring. So, you know, men do lots of Nordic curls. It's, mm. You know, football, European football players do lots of Nordic curls so they don't get hamstring pulls. Okay, that's great. But don't do that in women because mm. women, they get 80% fewer muscle pulls than men, but they get four times more ACL ah. ruptures. That's because the estrogen affects the stiffness of the, of the connective tissue. So if I am loading a man and a woman the same way, when they have vastly different musculoskeletal injury risks, if I do if I do Nordics on a woman, I'm actually increasing the risk of the, them having more ACL problems. So on a on a female soccer player, what I'm going to have them do is I'm going to have a, them do a lot more dynamic hamstring work. So from a bridge to extend the legs, catch where you're mm. catching on your heels before you hit the ground. So that's a nice plyometric controlled plyometric where i'm addressing the hamstring it's a plyometric on the hamstring not an isometric or a, a heavy slow so what that's going to do is increase the stiffness now that's going to help stabilize the knee and it's not going to increase the risk of so understanding what are the what are the injuries we've got what are the performance measures what are the different things and now when i'm going to load that as a coach or as an athlete now what i'm going to do is i'm going to say look I have a history of musculoskeletal pulls where I pull my muscles all the time. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to do lots of heavy slow work. Or I'm slow as can be. I don't have a lot of acceleration. I've never had a muscle or tendon problem in my life, largely because you're not very stiff. All of those things tell me I'm not very stiff. So now what am I going to do? I'm going to do more, more plyometric load. And I'm not going to just do 50 on day one, I am going to slowly move into it so that I can ramp up so that I can increase the load, just like you do with any of your other training. And now as I'm doing that, my performance is going to go up because I've realized, look, I don't need as many health-based moves because I've never had an injury. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to do performance-based move or the reverse. I've got lots of injuries. I don't need to do, but I'm fast as hell. I don't need to do lots of performance-based moves. I'm going to do more protective moves so that I can stay available so that I can play more games. All of these things are what you're looking at and trying to balance with the loads that I'm going to give you in the gym or outside of your specific training. So if you're understanding those things, when I'm programming a strength and conditioning coach, I am programming velocity. That's all I'm programming. So if you have a lot of injuries, I am going to do very low velocity. If you have very low performance, high, but never injured, high velocity. If you, But what I really want to do is I want to get both. So if you're getting one from your games that you're playing in your practice, I'm going to give you the other in the gym. If you're getting just, there's no, there's no plyometrics in your, in your sport because you're a swimmer or you're a rower, I'm going to give that to you in the gym so that I can try and increase your performance level. So all of those things are the things that are that are the wheels that are moving so that you can get this this right, so that you get this balance of performance and health so that you're optimized. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And there's so much good information on this podcast today. It was really great talking to you. I, you know, between the the animal studies and the added the additive effects, like the scar shielding, it's just there's so much good information. I can't thank you enough for your time here. Uh, Dr. Barr, before we uh, take off for the show today, is there a good place that people can find you? They want to keep up with your work or see what you're up to. Uh, where's the best place people can find you at? Yeah. So, so every once in a while, I'll 
still go on to Twitter and and go through my handle there is at Muscle Science. Um, and again, what I what I like to tell people is everything that I publish, I publish is open access, so that everybody, so we have to pay a big fee to do that, but that way everybody can see the research and can see what's being done research wise. Um, but if there is something that's maybe older or you can't get a hold of, people can just email me um, and I will send it to them. No, so that's the easiest way. Sounds good. Uh, well, thank you again so much. Uh, I really appreciate your time on the show today. Absolutely, no problem. Great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast, and I'll see you next week.